Thank you guys. It's great to be here with you this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 4. If you uh, took advantage of the Bible in the back like I did, that's page 836, uh, or maybe you'll just turn your Bible on to, uh, to 1 Thessalonians 4. If you are exploring the Christian faith, uh, we're really glad that you came here this morning, but I do need to warn you, uh, you picked a tricky morning to visit. Because what the Bible teaches about sexuality is a big stumbling block for people exploring the Christian faith. The Bible has really stringent boundaries around sexuality, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit, some of the reasons for that uh, as we go forward here. But that's a major reason why, why people struggle with the Christian faith. But, but what I want you to think about is that what the Bible teaches about sexuality and the boundaries around it are unnatural for all of us. Uh, it's calling all of us to a life that, that looks different. Now, some of you here, uh, particularly those who are older than me, are probably reeling by what you've seen. I think some of, the, some of the folks with maybe more white hair here have seen a lot of changes culturally in your lifetime. And a lot of you are, are rightfully responding and, and probably really upset about what you see happening culturally. Uh, and and the, the thing I want to encourage you with this morning is that the Greco-Roman world of the first century was actually a lot worse than ours. Far more permissive culture. And, and the kingdom went forward with power. Uh, so there was a lot that we can be hopeful in for, for God to do a work uh, in our country and in our own lives, in our culture. So join with me in reading 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 8. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how you are to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For we know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And I want us to, to start off this morning in, in perhaps an obvious place, which is, this is a passage that is written to Christians. I think often in the church we can have this idea of, you know, Jesus waves a wand over you or something when you come to faith. And yeah, none of us struggle with these issues. You know, that's just out there in, in culture. No, 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 no. This passage is written to Christians because Christian people need to hear it. Uh, because all of us are dealing with a sexuality that has been broken and needs redemption. Um, I should say that, that this means uh, Christian men and women... That, that sexual sin is a gender-neutral pathogen of the soul, that, that it is not just a man's issue, that, that the daughters of God struggle with these issues as well. So, so the obvious point here to begin with is that, that this is written to Christians because Christians need to hear it. 
Uh, if you are struggling with, with any kind of, of sexual sin in your life, with your sexuality in any way, uh, you need to realize that there are two lies that we are prone to believe. Number one, you're the only one here dealing with that. Not true. And number two, you can just deal with it by yourself. That's also not true. You need, you need the rest of the church. One of the things that I love about hope is that there is such a focus on community and an awareness of we are broken people who need one another to find redemption in Christ. The reason why I'm here this morning is that you have a leadership at this church that wants to come alongside you and care for you uh, and, and help raise you up. So I want you to see in this passage um, Paul's concern for, for the, the people in Thessalonica. These would be uh, people who were, not, were outside of, of the nation of Israel. So Paul is writing to, to people who had been converted from paganism, people who were, were just kind of Greco-Roman citizens that were not Jewish and probably had really broken sexual pasts. You know, prostitution was state-sanctioned in, in the Greco-Roman world because the proceeds went to build temples for the pagan deities. It was part of pagan worship. These would be people whose lives would be seriously jacked up sexually before they, they came to faith in Christ. And, and Paul knows that what he's saying is incredibly important, so I want to point you to the text here uh, where he says in verse 1, he's asking and urging them in the Lord Jesus. Uh, why is this important? He's, he's making a double appeal. It would, have been, it would have been an understandable thing if he gave them a command, if he gave them an imperative. This is what you are supposed to do. He, he's not doing that. He's, he's urging them. He's appealing to them. Uh, he's, he's writing to people who are very dear to him. If you know the book of 1 Thessalonians, back in chapter 2, he's referred to himself in his relationship with this church as a nursing mother or as a father with his children. These were people that were incredibly dear to him, that he loved deeply, and, and he's urging them, you know this is what's best for you. You know this is what's best. And, and so he's appealing to them. And note, too, that he's appealing to them in the Lord Jesus. And so he says in verse 1 that, that it's in the Lord Jesus that he's, he's asking and urging, and then further that, that these instructions he gave come from the authority of the Lord Jesus. And, and you should know that this Greek word for instructions is military terminology. It's the commands that come down from a superior officer. So, so basically what he's saying is don't shoot the messenger. Uh, this is not coming from me. This is coming from a higher authority. And and you need to listen. I'm appealing to you. Those who are so dear to me, listen to this, to these commands that are coming down from him. This is so important uh, that you would, would um, take seriously how you're called to live. So the first thing is this urging and appealing to Christians. The second thing I want you to notice, and this is so important, that sexuality is good. I, I am desperate that the church of Jesus Christ in this day and age would have a positive message of sexuality um, to the world because so often the church is just heard as, as being completely negative about sex. And the only thing, if we either have embarrassed silence and we don't talk about it, or we tell our kids, just wait till you're married, but we have not really done the work of developing what the Bible says positively about sex. And I hope to do that a little bit with you this morning. But to start off, what I want you to, to notice in, in verse 3 there, uh, I'm sorry, verse 4, that you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. 
Part of the problem is you could read a passage like this and it can just sound very negative. It can sound like it's just kind of reining you in and boundarying you. But what you need to realize is the Bible is incredibly positive about sex. Paul is writing this into a, a cultural time when philosophers were basically saying the physical is bad. The majority of philosophers, now some were still saying kind of embrace your pleasures, but it doesn't really matter. But, but people, so think of uh, some of you, maybe when you went to college, you had to take a Western Civ class and you learned about Plato in the cave, right? The whole point was the, this physical world is life in this dark cave and trying to understand these shadows bouncing off the walls. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to transcend the physical, get outside the cave, that the spiritual is what it's really about. Um, it's interesting that the history of both Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy, if you think of something like Buddhism, incredibly negative about the physical. The whole point is get rid of the physical. The spiritual is where it's at. The Bible is the only thing that says, no, 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 no. Your physicality is good. God created this world and declared it to be very good. God delights in, in us as physical beings and in the world that he's made. Uh, scripture holds this together that you are physical and spiritual beings, and that what it, the, the Christian hope is not being whisked off to heaven one day to kind of float around in the clouds. That's something that is often communicated, and people hear that actually sounds a lot more like Platonism than Christianity. What Christianity says is one day the physical and the spiritual are going to be united. That out of heaven is going to come this city. There's going to be a recreated heavens and earth. And God is going to dwell with his people and you will see him face to face. That is the Christian hope. That you're not going to get rid of your body. Your body is going to be gloriously transformed. So I turned 49. I'm beginning to understand why my grandparents grumbled about their bodies. Right? I have progressives now, because I was reading like this before. Um, our bodies break down, but what is the Christian hope? A body like his body that could walk through walls and fly up in the air and do all kinds of stuff. Um, in fact, I like how C.S. Lewis kind of describes it in, he gives this picture in, in his book, The Great Divorce, and he makes clear, you know, I'm telling a story here, but his whole idea is that you become solider, you become more solid so that it's not that Jesus could walk through walls because he was like a ghost. He could walk through a locked door because he was so solid that the things that seem solid in this world, the molecules just kind of passed around him like walking through water because he was so much more solid. We have physical bodies that God declared to be very good. Uh, and this is so incredibly important because this applies to our sexuality. And so what he's saying here. Uh, you have to do a little bit of work with me here. Uh, it won't be long, but, but where you see bodies, some of you, if you've been paying attention, there's a footnote there, and it says, or take a wife. It's a little bit confusing. There's a Greek word there that Peter uses to refer to wives in 1 Peter 3. That's why translators are like, eh, what, what is he saying here? But, but a number of commentators have said that, that that Greek word that he's using, skuos, really is, is referring to your genitals, specifically. And they, they make arguments connecting with, with other places in Scripture. Uh, and that certainly fits with the context. I want you to think about this. In a world, in a cultural time, where people were saying the physical was bad, God was saying that there's a way you can steward your sexuality that is holy and honorable. That he blesses it. He affirms it. I don't have time this morning to go into it all, but 
There are so many places in Scripture that are incredibly positive about sex, and I'm only going to give you two. Uh, one of them is in Proverbs. You know, there's warnings against adultery in the beginning of Proverbs. But the reason given is, delight in the wife of your youth. There's this great place in Proverbs 5 where the husband is exhorted, delight in your wife's breasts. Be intoxicated with her love. Um, over against, again, a philosophy that would say sexuality is negative, the physical is bad. God is saying, I want you guys to be drunk with delight in the marriage bed. I want you to be intoxicated with pleasure with one another. Uh, and then the other, the other passage I would point to really would be the whole book of the Song of Songs, which is so um, robustly sensual that I would just put it to you like this. You're your English translators make accurate but very safe interpretive decisions. We, if we were to bring out the full import of the Hebrew, we'd probably feel a little bit comf- uncomfortable. It's not, it's not salacious, it's not titillating, but it is profoundly sensual. This, this man and this woman, so, so the, uh, the picture I'd want you to give in a couple of those passages where, where the man and the woman describe each other physically you know, the Christian view of sexuality is not like quick turn off the lights and, and you know, hopefully a baby will come from this. That's, that's not the point of sexuality. I mean, procreation is important. I'm not dismissing that. That is an integral part of it. Um, but when you look at this couple in the Song of Solomon, it's like they are literally standing outside. It's, you get this whole kind of return to the garden type of imagery in broad sunlight, looking each other up and down and delighting literally from head to toe in everything they see. There's a celebration in this gift. And so it's so important that, that you see this, even in this passage, that, that God is a God of pleasure, that God is a God who wants to give us good gifts. And, and this is true in general. Uh, think about it. We, we struggle with pleasure because in, a, in, a, in this world, we are, to, we are prone to take physical pleasures and worship them instead of worshiping God. That's why we struggle with it. I have a friend, his wife makes these cookies that he refers to as bars of sin. <laughs> because if you put it in front of him, he's going to be prone to eat too many, right? We have, this, we have this uncomfortable relationship with pleasure, not because pleasure's bad, but because we tend to overdo pleasure. But God is a God of pleasure. It's so important that you see this. Um, he is the one, after all, who designed sex to be as pleasurable as it is and declared it to be very good but it goes beyond that. He's, he's the one who gave us taste buds so we could delight in chocolate. He's, he's the one who created this beautiful world with, with all the colors. I love spring days like this where the sun is shining and the trees are starting to bud and the, the flowers are coming up. He's given this beautiful world that his word says reflects his glory and that one day it's coming where his glory is gonna cover this earth the way the waters cover the seas. He's given us ears so we can enjoy everything from these glorious, you know, uh, 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 Mozart's music to birds singing outside that, that he's given us ears to hear and to delight. Um, he's, he's given us beyond sexuality, just the, the wonder and, and joy of touch. He, he's a God of pleasure. Uh, and this is so important to see because the enemy is painting him all the time as a killjoy. Don't you know he's holding out on you? Don't you know he doesn't want to bless you? No, he, he wants to bless us. Um, he's a God of pleasure. And, and I just want to pause for a moment here to ask, uh, is this how you see him? 
I said a moment ago that all of us have a sexuality that's in need of redemption. And that means all of us are bringing a little bit of shame to the table with this. Uh, I have preschoolers at home, and so we've got all the, you know, joking about private parts now when you have a four- and five-year-old, just how life is. Um, why? Because they know something's up with this. You know, we're keeping our bodies covered up, and, you, you know, you don't go in the bathroom with each other. You know, um, there's, a, there's shame that gets attached to it, even as you try really positive, to be positive about sexuality and our bodies and everything else. Uh, all of us are dealing with it with a sexuality that's been impacted by the fall. And, and what I want to ask you is, do you see God delighting in sexuality and, and asking, inviting redemption in that area of your life? And one of the ways that, that I would want to encourage you, particularly for married people, can you believe that God delights in the marriage bed? Do you see that, that he smiles over lovemaking, that he, he rejoices in this? He wants us to to delight in our spouse and to worship him because he's a good God who gives good gifts to us. Um, and, and I understand for many here who are single, I, I want to address singleness in a little bit here because I realize there's all kinds of challenges there. Um, as many of you know, I went through a season having lost my first wife of being single again as adult for a few years, so I do know some of what that, that challenge is like as well. Um, now let me move on. Sexuality is good very clearly in this passage. The other thing is that sexuality reveals our spirituality. Uh, there's a reason why Christians are not too uptight about sex. God makes a big deal out of sexuality for this reason. If you look at verse 5, God's will, or verse 3 rather, God's will that you would be sanctified, that each of you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, sanctification um, is, is tied to the Greek word for holiness and and uh, holiness, a lot of times people think of holiness and they think it has to do with morality. Uh, it does in a way, but the main thing that holiness is about, for something to be holy means it's set apart. So when we say that God is holy, what we mean is he's completely different from us. He is infinitely set apart from us. Uh, for things to become holy, think of the Old Testament, the, the things that were set apart for worship in the Old Testament um, they, they were set apart in a certain way. There was a ritual they would go through to make them holy or set apart for God's use. And what he's saying here is um, your set apartness should be demonstrated by who you are sexually. That you cannot separate out your sexuality and your spirituality. That, that th this passage is linking these things together. Um, it's basically saying who you are sexually is a snapshot of who you are spiritually. Now, there's a lot of other things that matter about who we are spiritually. This is just, this passage is mainly talking about sex, but there's other things. I mean, money, what you do with your money, all, all kinds of stuff. So, so there's more to be said. But this passage in particular is saying who you are sexually reveals who you are spiritually. Um, and, and one of the questions I just want to ask you is, what does your sexuality say about who you are? Because, uh, what, what does it say about your spirituality? Uh, this passage is saying that it is a litmus test for who we are. Um, what Paul is doing, if, if you look, is that he's drawing a distinction between God's people in verse 4, controlling their bodies in holiness and honor, and verse 5, everybody outside. That, that word that's translated heathen in this translation, I don't know if the new NIV does the same thing or not. Um, 
is literally the nations. It basically is referring to people who are outside of God's people. And, and what it's saying is people who, who live outside of God are following their desires. They're just kind of, if it feels good, do it. Uh, and, and it's describing people here. It's using two, two Greek words that are translated passion and lust. And, and passion, uh, pathos, is like the, the passive side of lust. And it's kind of the, the uh, suffering that's involved when you're mastered by your desires. And the other word for that lust, epithemia, is this aggressive kind of ruling desire. And so again, it's, it's saying that, that you're, you're just living for your pleasure. If it feels good, then you do it. And, and God's people are supposed to be characterized radically differently that they're not ruled by their pleasures. They're not ruled by their instincts. In fact, Jude describes it this way. He says that, that people, when they're ruled by their instincts, become unreasoning animals. And so this is one of the things I want you to think about, that, you're, that sin deconstructs your humanity. It makes you less of the image bearer that God created you to be. So uh, just last night, I, I started reading the little kids, the preschoolers, the Chronicles of Narnia. Starting with the line in which of the wardrobe. If you have kids, you've got to start there. Don't do the revised order. That's no good. Do the, do the order that he wrote them in. Um, anyway, one of the things in the Chronicles of Narnia is, you know, if, if you know this fantasy series by C.S. Lewis, that the animals talk in this world. They were warned at their creation, if you turn away from following Aslan you will lose your ability to talk. You will no longer be able to reason. And, and I think what Lewis was doing was giving us a picture, right, of this is what happens when you turn away from God. You lose your image bearing. You lose who he created you to be. And you become instead ruled by your desires and you look like everything else, uh, everyone else. He wants us to, to be his image bearers. Um, yeah, let me... Let me urge you to, to, to think about it like this, that um, freedom is not you can do whatever you want. Freedom is living according to the design he gave you. So a goldfish is not free if it jumps out of the bowl. That could look like freedom. It's not going to last very long, Right? Freedom is living according to the design, living according to how you were made. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, Bob Dylan, put it this way, you got to serve somebody. Might be the devil, it might be the Lord. You were created to serve. You will either submit those desires in service to him, living under his rule, or You'll, you'll, you'll just live according to the patterns of this world. Um, and again, your humanity deconstructs. Um, now, some of you, I, I do want to ask um, where you're struggling with these issues. Uh, I know this for sure. 100% of us in this room have a sexuality that's been impacted by the fall that needs redemption. 100% of us. Um, this wedding ring is foreign to who I am naturally. Apart from Christ, I cheated on every woman who had the misfortune of dating me. I needed a radical, supernatural intervention to happen in my life to make me to be a faithful husband. And I, I want to ask you, where are you struggling? It could be um, 
wrong use of, of the internet, going places that you don't want people to know about. You know, when I started working at Harvest 19 years ago, I was saying, what you used to have to go to an adult bookstore is now coming to your home PC. Well, 19 years later, it's coming into your pocket. And, and I'm particularly, I feel for the young people here, if I had access to pornography the way y'all did, I think I would have dropped out of middle school. I don't think I would have been able to handle it. It is, it's crazy what's going on. So, so where are you struggling? What's going on in your life? It could be uh, that person in the workplace that you, you're flirting with. You're crossing lines. You know you shouldn't. Uh, it could be fantasy life in your mind, things that you think about. Uh, other behaviors that you engage in, maybe even stepping outside of marriage or, or crossing lines in, in dating relationships. Um, again, if, if sexuality was the only way to kind of determine who you are spiritually, what would it say about you? Now, uh, I said this was written to Christians. It's really important um, and, and we're, go- we're going to end positively. If there are things in your life that aren't right, I want you to wrestle with that. I do want you to be uncomfortable right now in this moment. But Scripture never leaves you there. You know, sometimes I'll talk to guys, oh, I had a great sermon on Sunday. Well, tell me about the sermon. I just felt so terrible. I walked out of there just feeling so terrible about the things in my life. That was not the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God will convict you, but He woos you. And that's where this passage is going to take us. Don't you know I have something better? Um, anytime you are walking away from Scripture feeling condemned when the promise of Scripture is there is no condemnation for you, that is not the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit woos you to Christ. It exalts Jesus so that you would see him and turn to him and see that he's better. Um, very briefly here, one of the reasons why this is so important to God, and I, I just want to point to... Um, Verse 6, where it says, In this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Um, Sexual sin is not a victimless crime. It is always exploitive. It's always exploitive. Even when it's consensual, it's just mutual exploitation. And, And what I mean by that is, you know, God says love looks like, um, in 1 John um, 5, it says, Love looks like obeying God and keeping his commandments. That's how you know you love other people. And that's why these, these, ver- the, these words that are used to, to uh, wrong one another and take advantage, um, the, the wronging is this idea, it's, it's trade language. It's about ripping someone off. Um, taking advantage has in view transgressing, trampling down a boundary. And so it's basically saying in sexual sin, you are ripping someone off, you are trespassing on their soul. Uh, Now, I want to take a moment here. Obviously, I've done some challenging you on behaviors in your own life. Um, I want to just take a moment and acknowledge that that sexual sin is not just something outside of us. Uh, I'm sorry, not just something that we do, that it's also something that happens to us. Um, and it's important, if, if you are someone who has been sinned against sexually, it's so important that you see here in verse six, verse 6 that the Lord is going to punish men for such sin. The ESV says Jesus is an avenger in these things. Um, he takes it seriously. If, if you need to see a picture of what that avenging looks like, Go to Revelation 19. 
This is the ultimate archetype of the, the rider on the white horse. Uh, Jesus coming back on the last day to, to, to wipe out the enemies. And it's interesting because, because the, the vision um, is Jesus comes back and the whole host of heaven ride with him. And, and I was looking at that one time and realized, wow, they just come to watch. Jesus kills everybody. You know, here is the ultimate warrior who's described in that passage as faithful and true, who's going to deal with the, the ways that you've been sinned against. God, um, God hates, if you have suffered abuse, God hates what happened to you. He hates it. And he's not a God who's absent. I know there's questions and there's wrestling that we have, um, and there's a lot of answers that we don't get in this life for why certain things happen, why God allows certain things. But the one thing I can point you to is that he's a God who has suffered. He's not a God who's removed from suffering. He's a God who himself was stripped naked and lifted up and mocked and ridiculed and abused. He gets what you have endured, and he's taken that enduring on himself, um, defeating evil, Colossians 2 tells us, by going through those things. Um, If this is you, I do just want to make one plea um, that you would not keep this silent. You know, I, I realize the whole hashtag Me Too thing is, is a hugely political issue. Um, I do want to set the politics aside for a moment to say, I praise God that people are able to start voicing what's happened and that people are being called to account because God is a God of justice and he cares about that. Um, if that's you, you need to talk to people about what's gone on. You need to talk to the leaders of your church. They can connect you with counselors who have experience in processing this. Uh, One of the worst misapplications, uh, if you have suffered trauma and abuse, really of any kind, would be Philippians 3, where Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind. He doesn't mean don't deal with the stuff that's happened. If you try to bury this stuff, it gets buried alive. Um, so please, if this is you, reach out to, to Harvest USA. We don't specialize in that, but we can point you in different directions uh, where you can get help. Reach out to the leaders of your church, but know this, that, that God cares about what happened. Finally, I just want to point to my, my last point here is that um, sex is important because it points to something greater. And, and this is what you need to realize. Um, Ephesians 5 says, talking about husbands and wives, the conclusion is, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. Marriage and sexuality is about Jesus. That the whole hope of the Christian life is that one day, as I was saying a moment ago, heaven and earth are brought together, and the one in whom they are brought together right now is Jesus, the one who is God and man, who scripture says is a bridegroom. Jesus taught there was no marriage in eternity. Why? Because he's the bridegroom, and all of us who know him are his bride. That all of this is pointing forward to that, to this union that you can't even begin to get your mind around. He says, uh, and I think particularly here of singles, he says there are pleasures at his right hand forever that you need a resurrection body to experience. You couldn't even handle it right now. You need that solider body to be able to experience what he has for you. Um, That sex is pointing beyond itself. And you see that in our passage because he concludes, if you look at this, therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God. Now, let me, let me stop there because I think many of us would put a period there. 
This is that whole kind of condemnation thing I talked about a moment ago. You would put a period and say, oh my goodness, look at my life sexually. This means I'm not rejecting man, I'm rejecting God. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. If you're struggling with sexual sin, I know that's one of the ways the enemy comes after you. you how could you be a Christian and do these things? Um, this is written to Christians because we need to hear it. But look at, the last, look at the last clause. He gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you hear what he's saying? I want to be united with you. Why would you unite yourself with something else? Why would you turn to something lesser? I want to give you myself. You know, why do we, why do we, why do we overdo pleasure? Whether, whether it's, you know, chocolate cake or, or sex or, or binging on Netflix, whatever it might be. Why do we overdo pleasure? Because your heart was designed for union with one who is infinite. It's not that your desires are insatiable. They need an infinite God to fill them. And that's the hope of Christianity, that Jesus is this infinite one who's coming to you to satisfy you. And so he's saying, why would you turn to things that don't satisfy? I want to fill you. I want to satisfy you. Why would you settle for anything less than myself? Don't unite yourself to other things that aren't going to satisfy. Um, he wants to give you his fullness. Now, a couple words on the spirit here. Um, first of all, the Spirit means that He's in you, that He's going through life with you, that He knows the things you've suffered. Did you ever read Romans 8? The Spirit intercedes with us with what? Groanings too deep for words. He knows how you've suffered. He's experienced your suffering. He enters into that with you. It's not that Jesus went through that himself, although he did. I'll talk about that in a moment. In your own particular sufferings, because you're united with Christ by his spirit, he gets it and endures it with you. And at the same time, it is the spirit of Jesus. What does this mean? The one who Hebrews 2 says, he can help you when you're tempted, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. And hold that together with Hebrews 4. He was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. Bringing those two together, what does that mean? He knows how hard it is. But because he never sinned, he knows the exact grace you need to endure whatever you're going through. You know, it's like Corey Tenboom said, there is no pit so deep that Jesus isn't deeper still. His suffering isn't so, like, his suffering is so awful that you can just kind of just deal with it. It's not so bad as his. No, no, no. His suffering was worse than anything we go through so that you would know whatever you're going through, he can meet you in it because he's gone through it. He gets it. Uh, he wants to meet you in your places of struggling and suffering. He wants to bring redemption in this area of your life. The whole point of the cross is that we would be reconciled, that we would be able to have this relationship and this union with him. So the, the last thing I would point you to here, uh, St. Augustine wrote a book called Confessions. It's the first testimony, Christian testimony on record of a sex addict. And he says this, true and sovereign joy, you drove out all the other pleasures, you who are sweeter. He really does want to take you to a better place. He wants to take you to a deeper place with him. Um, let, me, let me just speak briefly here to people who are either in a hard marriage, people who are single, um, people for whom they feel like, hey, wait a minute, I was promised something and I don't feel like I'm going to experience this. Um, I like what C.S. Lewis said, quoting a lot of Lewis today. I like what C.S. Lewis said uh, in his book on miracles. He talks about no sex in heaven. And he says it's kind of like this. We can get really upset about the idea of no sex in heaven. Like, what does that mean, an eternity with no sex? Um, 
He says it's like this. It's like a father who tells his young son about sexuality for the first time, and the boy says, well, Dad, that sounds really interesting, but tell me this. When you and Mommy do this, do you get to eat chocolate? It's the greatest pleasure he knows. He can't imagine a pleasure that wouldn't include chocolate. C.S. Lewis says the idea of no sex in heaven is just like that. It's laughable that on the last day, when you see him face to face, when you enter in and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when you enter into the pleasures that are his right hand forever, that any of us is going to look and say, I wish I had more sex. It's going to be ridiculous because he has something, a solider hope for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessings. Thank you that you're a God who gives good gifts. Thank you that you have poured out your spirit on us. Thank you, especially in this season of Lent, Jesus, that we are reflecting on on your suffering for us, on what you've endured, and that you have conquered sin and death at the cross. Lord, would you help us uh, to enter in more fully? God, I pray that if there are brothers and sisters here who are struggling in silence, who have secret sin going on that they're not talking about, would you give them courage to, to risk it, to bring it into the light, to not leave this building without at least saying to someone, can I talk to you this week about things that are going on? Uh, Lord, thank you that you're a God who brings redemption and healing and transformation to our lives. I pray in Jesus' name.